The last time Maggie Bish saw her daughter Molly, she was dropping her off at her summer lifeguarding job. Molly had spent months getting her certification so she could be a lifeguard at Cummins Pond in Warren, Massachusetts. On summer days, the pond would fill with kids, families, and the occasional fishermen. But when people started turning up to the pond on June 27, 2000, they found there wasn't a lifeguard on duty. Molly wasn't there. Maggie was called back to the pond to find out where her daughter had gone, but that became a question that would prove difficult to answer. My mom called and said, Molly's not at the pond. And I said, what are you talking about? That, you know, they must be wrong. As rain started to fall that afternoon, Molly's parents began their long nightmare. Dive teams searched the pond, dogs scoured the woods surrounding it, and police in Massachusetts launched what would become the state's largest ever missing persons search. Well, it was more surreal. I was didn't believe it. All these people tried to do what they could, but there was not a plan. The police didn't really know what to do. The fire department came in thinking, well, she must have drowned. They really didn't consider Molly's behaviors. People were trying to do something, but it was confusion. From Boston 25 News, this is New England's Unsolved, a podcast of cold cases, crime files, and questions waiting for answers. I'm Dalton Maine. Today, we'll explore the disappearance of Molly Bish, a 16-year-old who went missing from her lifeguarding job in rural Worcester County, Massachusetts. The search for Molly became the largest in the state's history and left behind a heartbreaking legacy. Going home the night that Molly disappeared, and, and that was probably one of the hardest nights of my life. I remember just continuing to go outside and think maybe he'll drop her off. Whoever took her or whatever is happening, maybe he'll leave her in my front yard. That's Molly's sister, Heather, speaking in a video earlier this year. It's been 17 years since Molly went missing, and her family is still seeking justice. Her brother, John Bish Jr., along with the rest of her family, remembers the day Molly went missing vividly. I don't feel like she would run away, and she was gone hiding out. I didn't have that feeling. I think everybody wanted to blame themselves. While theories about Molly running away with friends floated around, it quickly became clear to many that she had been abducted. Left at the lifeguard station was an open first aid kit and all of Molly's belongings. We were like numb. We really were not sure what to do. That's Maggie, Molly's mother. In the days and months after Molly's disappearance, she remembered an encounter she had the day before Molly went missing that stuck out to her and became one of the most lasting images in the case. We pull up to the beach and there's a car parked and I got this horrible feeling in my gut. I just like stared at him. I didn't know what to do. I have nothing. I just gave him that, like a mother bear. I want you to go away. Go to work. What are you doing here? And so he, he like gave me the stare right back, which made me feel like he was bold. And I felt very uncomfortable, but I was not going to leave Molly. So what I did, I'm right almost by the car now. So I just pretend I'm getting my purse. I wasn't going to leave, but then he backs up. Maggie described a middle-aged man with a thick mustache sitting in a white sedan. Police were able to put together a composite sketch of an unknown man who remains a central suspect in the investigation to this day.
It would be three years before Molly's remains were found in a wooded area near Palmer, Massachusetts. The woods were less than five miles from the Bishop's rural home where they had moved from Detroit to escape the busy, sometimes dangerous life in the city. We thought it would be a safe place to raise our kids. I stayed home with my kids till Molly went to kindergarten. We made a lot of sacrifices so I could be home with them. And now I'm very grateful that I did because I had more time with my mom. On the long journey, I have looked for you. I looked for you in the first snowflake, and I saw your rosy cheeks and mitten fingers touch mine. I looked for you in the spring sounds, and I heard our favorite bird singing your name. I looked for you in the summer sky, and I saw a rainbow of your memories color my soul. I looked for you in babies' faces. This is a poem Maggie Bish recorded a few years after Molly's disappearance and death. For years, the Bish family had to learn to deal with Molly's absence without knowing who or what caused it. There were few answers until a hunter noticed a blue bathing suit in the woods near Palmer. Molly's parents spent three years in complete darkness. In those years, Molly's disappearance was profiled on popular television shows like Disappeared, America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, and later, 48 Hours. While searching for answers, the Bish family began a campaign to help keep children safe and to help find other missing children, so other families wouldn't have to endure their hardships. Holding my broken heart, another year, another tear, falls and gently reminds me that a mother's love is everywhere. That's how the Molly Bish Foundation was born, and her parents, Maggie and John, began their roles as activists. We were just blessed with a path, and I do think it's our Molly's little spirit pushing us, because get going, Mom, we got to do something. We can do something better. The family established the first Massachusetts Missing Children's Day, a day each year when all of the families with missing children are honored at the State House, and the names of each missing child in the Commonwealth is read aloud. The family also helped push to bring the Amber Alert laws to Massachusetts. While the Bish family was able to turn their tragedy into positive changes for the community, Molly's unexplained death took a toll on many as more and more time passed. It will soon be 12 years since Molly Bish was abducted and murdered from Cummins Pond in Warren, and there is still no sign of an arrest in a case that has captured the attention of people throughout New England. That was Boston 25's Bob Ward in 2012. He's been covering this case since the beginning. He was there when Molly went missing, and he was there three years later when her remains were found. While it seemed like a major step in the mystery, the discovery of Molly's body was just the next stage of her family's baffling journey. Bob Ward again in 2012. I've learned that in recent days, one of Molly Bish's close friends, a young man who testified before the grand jury, has died. And his death is just the latest in a string of deaths that has plagued this investigation. Kenneth Tatro, a close friend of Molly who had testified in a grand jury hearing about the case, marked the third tragic death to strike people close to Molly. Her mother described Molly's disappearance as having a black cloud over it, 
something that deeply affected all those who had been connected to her. In 2003, her friend Peter Rambazuski died in a single car wreck shortly after Molly's remains were found. In 2006, Molly's boyfriend Stephen Lucas also died in a single car accident in Palmer. It's difficult to say what effect the deaths had on the investigation. The grand jury had been convened to hear all of the evidence and testimony surrounding the case to see if anybody could be charged with her death. Eventually, the grand jury was dismissed without returning any indictments. And in 2007, the lead prosecutor on the case also died unexpectedly. Since then, Worcester County District Attorney Joseph Early has taken over the case. Doesn't matter if it's 10 years, five years, or a year. You know, it seems like it just happened. So in some regards, we're, we're very hopeful. In other regards, yes, you are frustrated. and You want to see something happen. You want to see something break. And like I said, we need, we need a break in this case. In 2009, a break finally came. There's a dead ringer. Dead ringer to the suspect. I could not believe it. You know, he really fits the criteria. I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, the police are, are, are looking at him. Tatro had testified in the grand jury hearing that he had seen a man in a white sedan watching Molly from the parking lot in the days leading up to her disappearance. That evening, I said, Mom, are you scared? Is anything make you nervous there? And she said, no, Mom, it's just fishermen. But a phone call from a relative in Florida convinced one Massachusetts woman that she knew who the man in the white car was. Why that suspect remains central to the investigation even years later. Coming up after the break. Boston 25 News at 10. Good evening, I'm Mark Ockerblum. And I'm Vanessa Welch. Every night, live with breaking news. We are following developing news. Chief Meteorologist Kevin Lamanowitz's forecast so you can plan ahead. This heavy rain's on its way late tomorrow afternoon. Exclusive investigations telling you both sides of the story. How do you explain this level of incompetence? Viewers reached out. No one's been held accountable. More reporters making sure you know what's happening in your neighborhood. We're live in Salem. Live in Watertown. Live in Boston. Boston 25 News at 10. While the Bish family searched for clues in Molly's murder, a particularly intriguing one turned up in Florida in 2008. A man named Rodney Stanger was arrested shortly after his girlfriend was found stabbed to death in the couple's home. The following is audio from a police interrogation room when Stanger was first interviewed. Well, you know what? I've been calling you Mr. Steiger. That's not right, is it? It's Rodney Stranger, right? No, it's Stanger. S-T-A-N-G-E-R. See, this, this is... Your driver's license photo yeah. says S-T-R. Yeah, they made a mistake on the driver's license. I know. That's okay. what I, I told them they made a mistake. So it's S-T-A-N-G-E-R. Right. Okay, and what state were you born in? friends of mine, you know. What made you move down here? 
I got sick of getting shot at, man. Oh, okay. And there's people up there know too. There's still people that know. Stanger would later be convicted for the murder of his girlfriend, Crystal Morrison. But it was Crystal's sister who first connected Stanger to the Bish case. Less than a week before she was killed. The phone rang and all of a sudden she says, Bonnie, she says, I may be murdered tonight. Crystal called her sister Bonnie in Massachusetts. It was the first time Bonnie talked to Crystal in 18 years. She was very frantic. She told me, she says, Bonnie, she says, I may be murdered tonight. Bonnie says Crystal wanted phone numbers for the Massachusetts State Police, the FBI, and others. Bonnie was so rattled, she called police to do a wellness check. And the next day, Bonnie talked to her sister again. It was a brief conversation, some of it spoken in code, and it stopped Bonnie cold. And she hesitated for a second, as if she was looking over her shoulder, and then whispered into the phone, murders. And I just went, you've got to be kidding me. And she said, no, I'm not. And then in the next sentence, she says, so what's your bird's name? I just told her the night before, Molly. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And she goes, yeah. What did you take that to mean? Molly Bish. And I, oh, my God. Why do you think your sister didn't just come out and say it? Because there were too many guns in the house. There were many knives. And he had her on a short leash. Just days later, police found Crystal's body inside the trailer. He stabbed her well over 39 times, then decapitated her. In the years since Bonnie told Bob Ward that story, the circumstantial evidence seemed to pile up. Stanger had lived in Southbridge, Massachusetts, where Molly had taken lifeguarding classes. Not only that, but he had lived on the same street as the YMCA where those classes had been. He had renewed his firearms permit just weeks before she was killed and then abruptly moved to Florida just months after Molly's disappearance. But it was a comparison between Stanger's 2000 firearms ID card and the suspect sketch that made the idea so compelling. That and his brother's white car. During the initial investigation of Stanger, Bob Ward spoke to a friend of his who had grown up with him in Southbridge and then reconnected with him in Florida. Like, uh, so then, you know, 2008 comes and he's arrested uh, for murdering his girlfriend, Crystal. Uh, yeah. You must have been he shocked. Wasn't a bad girl. Yeah, I was going to say, you must have been shocked when that happened. Well, yeah, because my wife came home for work. She had the paper. There's your, there's your buddy. He finally flipped out. I said, what are you talking about? He killed Crystal. No. She threw it at me, like, right? Oh, my God. Unbelievable. What was I knew he was black, but, you know, I didn't think he would do something like that. The other thing that comes to my mind, and I thought about this an awful lot, I mean, I know he has a great imagination, you know? Mike Philbrook described Rodney Stanger as strangely detached at times and occasionally delusional. He told Bob Ward that Stanger reconnected with him shortly after Molly's disappearance and months later moved to Florida. Even asking to stay at Mike's house until his wife demanded that Stanger leave. Eight years later, he stabbed his girlfriend to death in a rage. But was he capable of stalking, abducting, and murdering a teenage girl? Capable? Well, I'll tell you, just my opinion, knowing him and stuff, uh, even before he did this to Crystal, 
I think he's just about capable uh, of doing something like that. I mean, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to say anything, but, you know, look back. Yeah, he's he's not like an ordinary man, you know, if <laughs> you don't understand. I mean, he has, like, no feelings, no emotions, you know. He just drops you and walks away, and he doesn't look back for a long time. That's pretty strange. Massachusetts State Police would travel to Florida to interview Stanger several times. The Bish family's private detective would do the same, and Molly's sister Heather even wrote to Stanger. And while nothing has ever solidified a connection between Rodney Stanger and Molly Bish, the circumstantial evidence is so compelling that he remains a suspect to this day. I wouldn't say that there's anything that's ruled him out. Absolutely not. I mean, he, he his behaviors were, you know, homicidal. He killed animals. He hunted. He fished. He, he was from the area. He had access to a white car. He matches a, the sketch. Um, he's a convicted murderer now. Uh, so a lot of indicators towards being a potential person that did do this to Molly. If Rodney Stanger had something to do with the Molly Bish murder, do you think Rodney Stanger would admit that to the police? No. No, that'd be a game for him. You know what I'm saying? You look at Rodney Stanger and you say, yeah, there's quite a strong resemblance to the composite. You know, he may have owned a white car. It's a lead we've pursued. Is Rodney Stanger still in play? Everyone's still in play. Everybody's still in play. Everyone's any, still in play. Is he any higher up on the possibilities here than anyone else? I can't say that right now. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't say that any suspect is, is a greater suspect uh, than another or is more likely to have done it. Based on what we have right now, based on the way the investigation and the leads have come in, I can just tell you that we haven't ruled him or anyone else out. You really think after 10 years this is still a solvable case? Yes. Why so? Well, like I said, we have a lot of reasons uh, to hope that we're going to find uh, the killer and give closure to the family. Though it's been 17 years, the Bish case is still very active. Investigators say tips are still coming in, and all of them are followed up on. What's left is a family, hoping, waiting, even praying for answers. 17 years ago, dealing with unbearable loss, the Bish family threw itself into creating Missing Children's Day and the Molly Bish Foundation. It was their way to create some light after evil touched their world. But now it's time to step back. I don't, didn't want to let the parents down. I didn't want to. Um, it's just too much work. I, I, you know, we're hopeful. We're always hopeful that that last piece of evidence that they've so often talked about is, is there so we can put some resolution to this case. Um, so we are hopeful, but we are also um, understanding that, you know, maybe it's not going to be, we're not going to have all the answers and we might have to continue searching and continue fighting to find this person. Oh, it's torturous. It's absolutely torturous. It's like living in a constant state of fear. Um, you know, you, you're sort of in that fight or flight constantly. It, it, it can't be healthy. Um, I, I have, I, you know, I, I just, I just hope, I have hope that we will be able to put this to rest because I think my family really, really needs some peace. Molly's disappearance had a profound effect on not only her family, but so many people around her 
and so many other families in the Commonwealth who may have gone through something similar had it not been for the work the Bish family did. You can find more information about how to contribute to the Bish Foundation or find information about how to submit tips to the investigation on boston25.com unsolved. New England's Unsolved is a production of Boston 25 News. It was created by Bob Ward, and the podcast is produced by me, Dalton Maine, with additional sound mixing help from Sean Anker and archival assistance from Nicole Gordon. The music for today's episode was composed by Ross Budgen. You can find links to his work on our website. Special thanks to Mike Oliveira, the news director who greenlit this project, 